Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to Strangely and Friends, the podcast. This week is part two of my birthday celebration, where I tell you about all the books I read in the past year. Uh, and, and it's something I enjoy doing. I I hope those of you who listen to this podcast enjoy hearing about what I read. Uh, I hope it encourages you to pick up some of these. I hope I bring books to your attention that you didn't know about before. And uh, <laughs> thank you for indulging me. Uh, th th consider it my birthday present, I guess. <laughs> Uh, but this is going to take forever, so let's get right to the list. Uh, last week I did the first 60, and this is the following 70, so hopefully we can move right along. Next up is What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. Absolutely one of my favorite books of the year that I read. It's, it's about, oh man, this is one of those like really big idea, kind of wacky, high concept things where an author invents a word and then spends hundreds of pages explaining it to you. The word is the technium. Kevin Kelly asserts that technology, and so we're not just talking about like computers, but also like codes of laws and writing systems and conduct and religion and all human behavior and like things that are created by living things is actually just an extension of the kingdoms of life. And so the technium is almost another kingdom of life. So you have animalia, planta, fungi, uh, arachia, prokarya, whatever, uh, you know, all that. The technium is just another extension, is just an extension of life. So people build plows because plows want to be built. It, I'm not explaining it very well, but it's definitely super weird, big idea stuff. And yeah, I, you know, I feel like a lot of things that I read about technology these days are either very doom and gloom kind of end of history stuff, um, like that uh, Fukuyawa book, uh, sort of in the way that people kind of believe human progress has actually stalled. And Kevin Kelly actually has a very positive outlook on the future. And yet he's, he's sort of coming from a very interesting place. He was one of the founding editors of Wired Magazine, and yet he's never owned a smartphone. So he's a very interesting character in terms of what he's writing. He's spent time among the Amish. He's uh, cycled all over the world. He's, he's sort of got this, I don't know, for someone who is definitely very connected to the Silicon Valley world of tech creation and everything he has a very different outlook and it's really really fascinating i i highly recommend this book again one of the most interesting books i read this year which brings me to the next uh books i'm going to talk about uh this is the first four books in the wheel of time cycle by robert jordan that is the great hunt the dragon reborn the shadow rising and the fires of heaven I have such conflicted feelings about these. Uh, they're fun. They're really fun. Robert Jordan does some interesting things. I can totally see why fans of these books are legion. Um, and I, I also think that maybe the the deep and abiding love that many people have for them comes from having read them when they when you were younger. 
I, I didn't pick up these books in high school. When I was in high school, I read Lord of the Rings and loved it. And, it you know, I still enjoy big doorstop fantasy, obviously, the, um, as referenced in the last episode, Joe Abercrombie's work. But something about these books really just didn't quite grab me. I think maybe I, I didn't get them in my youth, so there's no nostalgia factor for me. And there's just something about... I just feel like they're not, there's no, there's no momentum. Uh, for instance, by the end of the second or third book, uh, Randall Thor, the sort of uh, messiah, you know, fantasy world character, he gets to the desert people, he joins the Fremen, if you will. Uh, and, and then there's just like a whole book of him sitting around with them while they all discuss whether or not he is actually the messiah and I, I feel like we the readers and the audience know that he is so there's kind of this like why are they not picking up on it whereas if the readers the audience had some doubt as to his veracity i think it would have been more interesting it it's it's a lot of big kind of broad stuff like that but it just the characters i really want to read about aren't central in the story oftentimes and I know that's a pretty common complaint with a lot of novels but it just yeah, that's just my uh my experience of it I I know that a lot of people really love these and I, I don't want to sound too critical I think he he does tend to write a lot of characters really well there's some really well written um female characters as well and there there is a lot of fun to be had with these books but they're just not quite for me and I I genuinely can't see myself reading another 11 of them or whatever uh i'd be happy to be proven wrong uh, i just gave my nephew the first one and he is ab he's uh 12 so he's like the perfect age for this and maybe if he rages through the series and wants to loan him to me after he's done i might check him out but it just didn't i don't know it didn't quite hit me and and obviously i'm very forgiving i gave it four bloody books uh to keep going uh, speaking of unforgiving things, uh, the next book is The Doctor Who Fooled the World by Brian Deere. Oh my god, probably the most enraging book I've read this year. Uh, it is some amazing reportage on the, I'm totally blanking on his name, the doctor who started the anti-vax, the modern anti-vax movement. It was one of his studies that everyone always references and points to, even though his sample size was something like eight children out of, you know, he reported on eight children out of a couple hundred. So it's just like, it's totally skewed data and it's not good science. And Brian Deere's book really not only digs into that, but also sort of tells the whole arc of this doctor's life into becoming this proponent of anti-vax theories and, and anti-vax culture. Uh, Brian Deere was the one who originally broke the story that the study had bad data back almost 20 years ago now, and yet people keep recycling it and it keeps coming back up. And, you know, this is a book that's even more crucial now as, you know, there's um, other reasons for grown-ass people to get freaking vaccinated. Uh so I highly recommend checking it out. It's it's really relevatory in in terms of understanding the egos and the mentalities and the personalities that really created the modern anti-vax movement. It's a difficult, infuriating book to read, but the 
the prose is really crackling and Brian Deere makes what could be very boring into a very readable narrative. So definitely worth checking out. I went on a little bit of a Cory Doctorow world kick this summer. I read his book, Walk Away, and that kind of got me interested in certain other books about sort of alternative digital culture and things like that. Uh, that's why I read What Technology Wants. That's why I read, they tell me this is how the world ends. So the Cory Doctorow book that I read this year was Walk Away. It's typical Cory Doctorow. You know, his whole thesis in every book that he writes is if we just listened to the nerds and everybody got good at using 3D printers, the world would be utopia. <laughs> I mean, your mileage may vary on that premise, but I, I say your mileage may vary a lot. Uh, you may get different amounts of umami out of that premise, but... I think this is Dr. Ao's best presentation of it, at least in the things of his that I've read, uh, because he actually takes time to sort of engage with the negative uh, questions that people have about his whole idea. I feel like he gives a lot of time to the naysayers and the people who are critical of his sort of 3D printed utopia. And the, the book is fun. A lot of the characters are very compelling. It doesn't quite all hang together because it it's it's almost more a series of eight or nine short stories that have some of the same characters popping up in them. So there's not a really strong overall narrative. And it kind of goes into Cuckoo Bananas transhumans territory at the end. But it, it is definitely worth reading, especially if you're kind of interested in potential directions that all of this is going like what happens when you have the incredible wealth disparities that we have now but also the possibility for very democratic technologies like downloadable 3d printer code for all manner of important human items it's it's fascinating stuff uh, through reading that i got interested in maureen webb's coding democracy coding democracy is a book about sort of the attempts by tech utopians, companies like Facebook, etc., to nudge our culture in better directions. It's it's very much kind of about some of the quick fix ideologies that are coming out of Silicon Valley and it raises some very important questions about security and again where all of this is going. It, it's a great companion piece to walk away. And I I read them back to back, so I recommend checking them out together. Speaking of nerdy tech utopian books, I read Project Hail Mary last summer by Andy Weir. This is his third book. He wrote The Martian, which was a huge success. Then he wrote Pro uh, Artemis, I believe it's called Artemis, which was pretty critically panned. And then he wrote Project Hail Mary, which is more back to kind of the Martian territory. You have a sort of jack-of-all-trades, every man stuck in space figuring out a problem. But there's also, you know, aliens and all kinds of cool stuff happens. It's a lot of fun. I can't quite say I love Andy Weir. Uh, conceptually, I really enjoy him. When he's getting into nerdy nuts and bolts stuff, I think it's a lot of fun. But I think if the two Andy Weir books that I've read have a, a uniting thesis, a uniting kind of Andy Weir view of the universe. It's that all the experts and PhDs available in the world are no match for the average Redditor. 
And by the average Redditor, I mean someone who has a vague idea about science and physics and all these things and can, and is good at Googling things. Um, and, you know, maybe there is some truth to the idea that a, a sort of generalist is more able to grasp and fix large, complex problems sort of in the moment in terms of quick, um, quick patches and sort of surviving another day kind of stuff. But I just, I don't quite buy into Andy Weir's independent scholars outside the system with kooky ideas are the ones who are the smartest forever. I'm not saying I'm totally in favor of academia, but I, I do think it's interesting that Andy Weir tends to lean very hard on the, you know, two dudes in the garage build a warp drive type storytelling as opposed to a bunch of scientists with good funding who are very, very smart build a warp drive, if that makes sense. There's no warp drives in any of his books. I don't know why I went with warp drives. Anyway, moving on to more nonsense. The next book I read after that was Beyond Order by Jordan B. Peterson. Oh, boy. Um, I Peterson is such an incredibly frustrating figure to me because I think the things that he is most known for in terms of popular culture and how everybody talks about him on the internet are not his most interesting contributions to human society. You know, he became the sort of cause celeb uh, conservative intellectual because he said he wouldn't use people's preferred pronouns if he was told he had to by the law. Uh, he does use people's preferred pronouns when they're taking his classes and things, but he's against having that mandated by law. But, you know, naturally on the internet where everything gets flattened, he was he was very much people went after him for that. And I, I don't I don't understand why everyone went after him for that. I mean, it sounds really heinous and he's definitely a butthead, but like there are so many better reasons to go after Jordan Peterson. Like the, the guy is so far up his own ass that it's hard to it's 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 hard to believe that anyone wants to debate him, to be honest. Like I I think he he makes some really interesting kind of meta-analysis of human culture things when he's talking about ancient myths, you know, things like Gilgamesh and comparing Gilgamesh to Star Wars or The Matrix or something. You know, very uh, Joseph Campbell, hero's journey, monomyth kind of stuff. You know, when, when he's doing sort of that kind of Jungian comparative archetypal analysis, it's interesting stuff. When he then applies that thinking to how he thinks people in the modern world should live and how people should interact with each other. It, again, it doesn't quite come together into anything satisfying or useful. A lot of his vaunted rules, uh, his 12 rules for life, his first book, or, you know, his most well-known book or this book, the sequel, um, uh, Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. You know, it... it, it <laughs> You know, some of his rules are just like, make your bed, you know, clean your room. Like, duh. Like, just, you know, he's telling people to be responsible adults, but then he tries to hang it onto this giant monomyth. Like, if you clean your room, you are being as heroic and badass as Beowulf or Gilgamesh or something like that. Like, it just doesn't, doesn't come together for me. 
And and then you add on top of that this layer of of I am smarter than you intellectualism. And a few episodes ago, I I did in my impersonation of him and read a passage from his book where he goes to a museum and he just looks at all the other people at the museum and thinks they don't know why these works of art are so beautiful. You know, he just he thinks he's smarter than everybody else and it doesn't read very well. And I, I honestly think that is a much stronger way to go after uh, JP than to take certain things that he said in an attempt to fight communism or something. Uh, he's obsessed with the the propaganda history of the Soviet Union, and I think that really colors how he interacts with his government. You know, he's one of those people who's very into fighting against what he sees as top-down big government tyranny and i i just i think he's one of those people who's just like so far into the the world of uh you know the intelligentsia and academia that he just he doesn't really have a grasp of real life unlike serhi plochi who <laughs> wrote the book chernobyl history of a tragedy oh boy you want to talk about the soviet union this book was Another one of the scariest books I've read this year because of how deadpan it is. You know, it's it's very much uh, Eastern European kind of bleak narrative. Uh, this is a nonfiction book on Chernobyl, sort of the 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 sequence of events that led up to the disaster, and then a blow by blow, minute by minute recount of the disaster. I believe this book was the basis for the HBO miniseries that was really popular a year or two ago. Uh, as a, a historian, I found this to be really well-researched uh, and very compellingly written. You know, it's one thing to have really exciting information, stories, uh, you know, a compelling historical event like Chernobyl. I mean, the name of that city is synonymous with nuclear fallout, nuclear disaster, you know, it's it's a it's a ripping tale, even just the facts. But Plohi manages to to give it some humanity. You know, he, he there's some incredibly poetic moments where he talks about the the helicopter crews that are trying to seal it by dumping concrete onto the reactor and things like that. It's I I highly recommend reading it, especially if you like historical disaster narrative. Like if you enjoy reading about the Titanic. Uh, or uh, uh, Into the Wild about uh, Chris McCandless. Like if you, if you sort of enjoy these sort of uh, historical forensic investigations on into a disaster, this is an excellent book. Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Oh boy, I love this book. Uh, it's bananas, you know, as, as is a lot of Stevenson's work. You know, he is... In some ways, he's the anti-Cory Doctorow because Cory Doctorow thinks if we just listen to the nerds, the, we would have utopia. And Neil Stevenson is like, "You're no one's going to listen to the nerds, so the nerds have to rise up and take the world by force. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, definitely has some of his, his funnest bits. Uh, things like a, a, skate, a, a mob of skateboarders with magnetic harpoons pulling a helicopter out of the sky you know stuff like that it's it's very 90s cyberpunk sci-fi and uh 
I enjoyed the hell out of it. So check that one out. The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. Kathleen Norris is a Christian poet and author who lives in Northwest South Dakota. I always like saying that. Northwest South Dakota. I love her writing. She, over the years, has gotten more and more involved with monastic communities. She'll go and visit monks at abbeys or you know, uh, she'll go stay with hermits and things like that, and then just write about her experiences. And she does such a wonderful job of examining ideas like hermeticism and meditation and and faith in a, in a way that you wouldn't expect. You know, saying that she's a middle-aged Christian poet who lives in Northwest South Dakota, the image that that probably conjures in your mind doesn't quite it, it, it's, it doesn't capture her because she spent her 20s and early 30s like deep in the art scene of New York City, like while punk was ascendant. So, so she's the kind of person who in her book talks about going to a gay hairdresser and he asks her like, do you think Christians are, are do you think Christians have less fun because they don't swear? And she says, I don't see why the fuck not. Like she'll she, this this lady drops f bombs. She's a very colorful character, and yet she's writing about deep things like faith in a way that's not trying to not trying to to proselytize, not trying to get anybody to convert to anything. She's just sharing her experience in a in a very non judgmental, very open and curious way, and it it's it's really fascinating because. In her earlier books, when she started hanging out in these monastic communities, she wasn't religious. And sort of over time, she's gotten more and more religious, but but never she's never crossed over into being preachy. Uh, and The Cloister Walk is just such a fascinating account of she spent about a year at this one monastery and, you know, woke up for Vespers with them at 4 a.m. and did chores with them and everything. And and the end result is this beautiful book. Uh, and because she comes from being a poet, the prose is also very uh, good. <laughs> Speaking of very good and ridiculous, uh, Zodiac by Neil Stevenson. I was on a bit of a Neil Stevenson kick this year. You'll hear some of his other books farther down the list. This one might be my favorite of his books. This is a sort of a techno thriller about an uh, uh, an eco, uh, basic kind of an eco terrorist. It's a yeah, it's a techno thriller about eco terrorists, and it's it's very of the moment of when it was written. So it's a very like '90s, you know, early '90s thing where a guy is zipping around Boston Harbor on a Zodiac boat getting into all sorts of scrapes with the law and the mafia. And it's it's very Neil Stevenson, yet it's not... Uh, this is before he wrote Cryptonomicon. So this is before he could just write the biggest effing book he wanted. And his editors were like, great, thank you for these 900 pages. So it's a much tighter, more condensed Neil Stevenson. If you're wondering what the attraction of his writing is in terms of his uber nerdy techno writing where he will have it be very important to the drama of the story that plastic melts at a certain temperature. Uh, this is definitely a great entry point for Neil Stevenson. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his work, but I'm also someone who can devour 900 pages relatively quickly. So 
his sort of overwrought prose doesn't hit me the same way as someone who might spend more time just with one of his specific books. Uh, but again, this definitely has all the crackle and fun of something like Reemdy or Cryptonomicon, but it's not quite as long. It's, it's much tighter and more focused. I know I'm sort of ping-ponging back and forth between uh, thrillers and uh, philosophical books, but this next book is my favorite book of philosophy I think I've ever read. This is Ultralight Backpack and Tips by Mike Cleland. More than any other book of advice I've ever read, this one has affected me. It's it's, it's really hit me very deeply. It, ostensibly, it's a book about how to ultralight backpack. So sort of how you can cut the little corners off your bag, how you can make a lighter backpack, how you can make an ultralight sleeping pad, how to make a, a stove out of a cat food can. But through it, he sort of shares a lot of his personal life philosophies and because it's in list form with all these tips, I think it's something like 128 tips or something like that. He can kind of meander. So he can talk about how he feels about the natural world by discussing whether or not he uses bug spray, you know, things like that. And it's all illustrated with these really goofy, delightful cartoons. So it kind of has a cartoon guide to physics sort of feel, but I, I read it again over every couple of years and it you know it just takes a couple hours it's a very short little book but the philosophy of it you know he's, he's ostensibly talking about the weight of physical things but somehow along the way he also ends up addressing how you can let emotional baggage go as well i i, I don't know if this book would hit other people the way it, it hits me but genuinely if you if you want something uplifting and interesting and you have any desire to go outside and explore and walk around check this out even even if you just want to start going for walks around your neighborhood and town and and maybe you know carry water with you he has great information on water bottles and how to what the lightest possible water bottle is it's it's great i you know it's obviously aimed at back backpacking hikers and things but there's just something about the way he talks about weighing everything in your backpack that almost becomes about weighing everything in your heart man i i hope that comes across for all of you out there uh because yeah it's a fantastic delightful and beautiful book <laughs> moving on the coddling of the american mind by jonathan Haidt and greg lukianoff Jonathan Haidt is also the one who wrote The Righteous Mind that I will be mentioning a little bit later. Oh, I'll talk about The Righteous Mind now as well. Uh, so the, the, the coddling of the American mind basically makes the assertion that American culture has moved in a direction of getting softer and, and not... It makes it sound like it's some sort of like manly man bootstraps like our kids are so soft these days. But but the essential idea is that the less bad things you have to deal with in your life, the lower your bar is for what is the worst thing ever. So if you've never experienced a human death in your family, say the death of a goldfish might be a very, very traumatic event. Whereas if you've experienced the deaths of many human family members, 
the goldfish might not be as important. That's a really, really oversimplification of the kind of things that uh, are talked about in this book. But it is it is a book that offers a potential explanation for the incredibly divisive nature of American public life, of politics, of internet culture, of all these things. They're definitely coming at it from a, a more conservative kind of faith-based standpoint, but I was surprised at how much I agreed with in this book. I, I think this and The Righteous Mind are excellent books for more liberal people to read to try to understand sort of these larger societal divisions that we are facing and and sort of how we get into these points where things like whether or not people get vaccinated almost become a, a team affiliation kind of idea. Uh, the righteous mind is a little bit more religious focused. Uh, the, the big question in the righteous mind is how it can be that you can have people who really truly believe that their Christian faith says they should not vote for someone like Donald Trump and how there are also people who equally believe based on their faith, the exact opposite, even though they're both operating from the same original text, the same, but you know, the Bible. And it, it's a little bit more religiously focused, but again, uh, with the righteous mind and the coddling of the American mind, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, they're, they're referencing cutting-edge neuroscience and understandings of human neuroplasticity and, and human cognitive behavior to try to sort of understand and address these divisions. You know, I, I often try to read big idea books from people who have very different outlooks or starting places from myself. And these two were definitely at times difficult for me to process because I don't have the same starting point as them, you know, but unlike something like Jordan Peterson's work where I can kind of laugh at him because he's so full of himself, I do really feel that uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff do mean well. Uh, they they do a really great job of acknowledging their political leanings and everything uh, toward the beginning of the book. One of them is a very a staunch lefty Democrat, but the other one is a little bit more Describes himself as more centrist, but he's the center conservative, I feel like. Uh, but again, these are not, uh, this isn't like a, you know, a Fox News published attack on quote unquote the left. It's just a very, I think a very clear-eyed examination of sort of a lot of our current cultural moments. So I recommend those two books uh, quite a bit. However, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I know some current event stuff is kind of coming up in this. Current events in terms of uh, th this this decade. Uh, so let's let's leave that behind and head back to my favorite series of books from my childhood, the Redwall books. I reread the first three Redwall books this year: uh, Redwall, Mossflower, and Matameo. And I'm I'm so glad that I got to go back. You know, sometimes you reread things from your childhood and they don't they don't hold up or they don't deliver the same kind of feeling or you're like, oh, snap, this is uncomfortable. And these really, for the most part, they aren't. They're, they hold up surprisingly well. They're delightfully uh, delightfully written. They're page turners. They have The, the, the pacing is great. They, I mean, they definitely get a little bit repetitive, but it's I think that's part of their charm. It's sort of like, well, you know how this is going to go and you know and and he will mix up his formula from time to time. 
these are by all by Brian Jacques. I don't know if I said that already. Uh, the the one thing that I I do find a little bit difficult when reading these as an adult is that they lean into kind of this uh, nature versus nurture uh, idea that certain certain animals in the, these are books about anthropomorphic animals having uh, high fantasy middle ages adventures. Uh, certain animals are just bad because they are. So animals like foxes and ferrets and stoats and weasels and rats are bad because they're bad and otters and beavers and badgers and mice and squirrels and moles are and shrews are good because they're good and there's not a lot there's not a lot of room for gray and i mean yeah they're children's adventure fantasy books that's fine um i I recommend them though. I mean, they're, they're great. These books almost more than anything else are what made me a reader as a child. I loved reading these books and the prose definitely holds up the, the descriptions of things, the, I mean, Brian Jock will take 10 pages to describe the food at a feast. It's just so good. Uh, at some point, I might need to write about these at more length, but I love these books. I recommend them. If you just want something cozy, you know, that you can kind of step away from all of this in our modern lives, they're really lovely. Uh, you know, there's some there's some violent, bloody battles, but it's really more about being a, a, a ripping adventure yarn than... Uh, than trying to be something dark or frightening. And especially if you just want a little bit of escapism, I cannot recommend anything more highly than these. Uh, if you get the audiobook versions, all of the songs have been turned into songs by a professional musician who plays the lute and there's some accordion and bagpipes and things. It's just a delight. Speaking of delightful audiobooks, I finally, finally... I know I'm about 20 years behind, finished the series of unfortunate events, the last three books, The Grim Grotto, The Penultimate Peril, and The End, all by Lemony Snicket. And these are just so freaking delightful. I did these as audiobooks as well because they're read by Tim Curry. So if you just want like, I don't know, 100 hours of Tim Curry whispering into your ears, get a series of unfortunate events on audiobook. Every uh, book has an original song written by Lemony Snicket and performed by his band, uh, the Gothic Archies, that sort of thematically matches the book. It's just absolutely delight. These, I, I was a little bit too old for them, you know, when they were coming out and being marketed at children, but I absolutely, they also hold up for adults. There's a lot of layered uh, humor in them and especially if you enjoy playing with language and puns and 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 sort of word games these are definitely worth reading they're so fun and Tim Curry is just delightful next up The Old Ways by Robert McFarlane this is a book about walking and I think it might be the best book about walking I've ever read. Robert McFarlane likes to walk hiking trails uh, or walk along beaches or walk through medieval courtyards and things like that. And this is a book about that. But it's also a meditation on sense of place and artistic creativity and what you find in your soul when you're a little bit uncomfortable and cold or you, when you go for a walk. 
So this is about walks that he took through the British Isles, but also a walk he takes in Palestine and a walk he takes in France. It's just it's an incredibly beautiful book, and it, it has a sort of sadness to it, but I there's imagery in it that will stick with me for a long time. He goes and visits this artist who makes sculpture out of natural found materials that he then buries. And it's sort of this weird, uh, you know, kind of hermetic thing where this guy is just out there living on a little island with his wife, making sculptures and burying them. Uh, And it sounds insane, but, you know, Robert McFarland goes and talks to him and, and learns his reasoning. And it's beautiful. So check that out. (laughs) speaking of uh ridiculous art that i don't really know who it's for or why or what the hell i completed the black dossier by alan moore kevin o'neill at al this year this is the third trade paperback of the league of extraordinary gentlemen and it is alan moore and kevin o'neill at their most insane i really think so If you're unfamiliar with Alan Moore, he writes comic books, but he also generally includes long, long, long prose passages in his comic books. So if you read through a series of Alan Moore, for instance, uh, Watchmen, by the end of having read it, not only have you read almost a novel's worth of text in the actual comic book, you often will end up reading a bunch more text sort of in these ancillary materials that he includes with them. And I think his writing is incredible. He's he's a crazy person. He has some very strange ideas about life, the universe, and everything. I think he worships a giant snake. He's The dude is nuts, but he does do an incredible job of making very loving pastiches of other writers. Uh, so the series of, un- uh, series of unfortunate events, <laughs> the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen universe that Alan Moore created is sort of a Wold Newton kind of thing. Uh, where every character that has ever existed in British literature all exists in the same universe. So you have Mina Harker from Dracula rubbing elbows with Alan Quartermain from King Solomon's Mines, and they're teaming up with Captain Nemo, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, Alan Moore has this ear for writing Captain Nemo's dialogue to sound like Jules Verne's Captain Nemo's dialogue, if that makes sense. And and Alan Quartermain sounds like Alan Quartermain. And so you get a lot of fun when these literary characters bounce off of each other. But then he will also write additional pieces of prose that copy other writers' styles. And the Black Dossier is sort of the pinnacle of that in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series where there's there's a comic book written as though it was written like within the comic book there's a comic book within the comic book that is written as though it was the the 1984 uh universe actually existed and so all the drawings are you know saying double plus good and things like that but then there's also a sort of recreation of a a regency romance novel and there's a whole passage that's a jeeves and wooster adventure where jeeves and wooster encounter cthulhu you know it's like it's bananas nonsense, but it all kind of hangs together because you can just tell that Moore loves all these books and just wants other people to love them. And so he's sharing them in the medium that he works in, in comics. Uh, can I recommend this specifically to people? Uh, but if you, if you, if you like, you know, pants on head, bananas, 
comics. These are definitely very good, and the stories are compelling and a lot more interesting than a lot of other comics, uh, which makes sense from the author of Watchmen. Uh, not nearly as good as Watchmen, but if you enjoyed something like Watchmen, give these a look-see. Uh, they're a lot of fun. Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. This is another favorite book for me this year. It is about the fact that people don't really know how to talk to each other. You know, I, I mentioned that uh, in uh, The Righteous Mind and uh the coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt and uh, his co-writer were trying to discover what the cause of divide is, th these divides that we're experiencing culturally are. And, you know, they had sort of their version of it. Sherry Turkle's interpretation is much more grounded, I think, in at least the reality that I've observed. Uh, simply put, she thinks we don't talk to each other enough. She thinks that so much human interaction is now mitigated through things like text messaging or uh, email that people don't know how to just have a conversation. And if you don't know how to just have a conversation, how to sit across the table from someone and look them in the eye and acknowledge their basic humanity, of course, you're going to have a difficult time coming to some kind of accord of, of coming to agreements about difficult topics of finding compromise because the art of conversation Turkle maintains is about compromise it's about give and take it's about listening as much as you speak etc I found this heartbreaking to read because it all rings very true to me you know I, I'm not a scientist I don't have uh, a lot of data I'm not a trained psychologist I, I, I don't know any of this for a fact but in terms of reading something and having it echo things in my own heart and give me an explanation for what I've experienced, this is very, very high up there. Uh, difficult and sad to read, but also hopeful. Yeah. Sorry, it's interesting. As I, as I sort of review some of these books, I, I really once again feel how the whole book made me feel. So I guess you could say this uh, podcast recording is an exercise for me as well. Speaking of exercise, this next book is one that I listened to the audiobook of entirely while running. This is Seven at Sea by Eric Orton and Emily Orton. It's the only book, to the best of my knowledge, that I read this year that was written by Mormons. <laughs> It's Mormons living at sea. Uh, you know, I, I sort of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole this year of books written by people who followed their dreams into strange or different lifestyles or just strange or different adventures. So the idea of we sold our condo and bought a sailboat and us and our five kids lived on the sailboat for a year and sailed around the Caribbean and the, the sailed around the Atlantic just a delightful book you know they don't really have any great thesis there's no great narrative moment there's it doesn't even really hang together as a narrative but it's just this family telling the story of living together as a family in a you know 40 foot catamaran and I, I, I found there was a lot to love. They definitely are very forward about their Mormon beliefs. Uh, but I almost found that endearing. You know, I, 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 uh, 
it would have been so easy for them to write a book like this and not mention any of that, but they just, they're telling their story warts and all. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I read a bunch of these sort of lifestyle change books because I'm kind of in a period myself right now where I, I don't really know what the next 10 years of my life looks like. And I'm sort of spending some time marinating in other people's experience, you know, other people sharing their experiences of, of doing things like that. Speaking of other people's experiences, uh, <laughs> uh, The Cobweb by Neil Stevenson and Interface by Neil Stevenson and J. Frederick George. These are two of Neil's early uh, thriller books. They're, they're techno thrillers. Uh, the Cobweb is about a, a sort of a, a, a secret plot to steal American farming technology in the Midwest. It's very, uh, it's, it's, it's probably the closest he get comes to Tom Clancy territory. It's, you know, it's, it's very Neil Stevenson. It's again, it's early Neil Stevenson when there's a much uh, stronger editorial hand being exercised on him. So the book is short and tight and to the point, uh, an interface, which he co-wrote with his uncle. I believe he also co-wrote the cobweb with his uncle. I don't know why I forgot to write that down. Interface though, is, <laughs> is just about, uh, the, the, the best way I can explain it to you is that towards the end of a book, a crazy man in a windbreaker uh, is pointing a gun at someone and he says, you don't understand. You have to let me buy. The president of the United States has a chip in his brain that allows him to mind control the American. The, the, the president of the United States has a chip in his brain that allows him to read the minds of the American people. And I know this because of this Dick Tracy watch I'm wearing. And all of that is true, and the crazy person is not actually a crazy person. So basically, Neil Stevenson spends an entire book constructing a world where an insane, batshit uh, conspiracy theory has act is actually true and has come to pass. It's a lot of fun. It's it's total nonsense, and uh, it's a better political thriller than anything I've read from you know Tom Clancy. So check that out. It's super fun. Uh, you know, it's it's bananas. It's absolutely bananas roadside picnic by arcady and boris strugatsky speaking of utterly bananas books roadside picnic tells it, it, this is the the book that the film stalker the 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 russian science fiction film was based on uh, it's also, a premise that, although he claims not to have read this, it's very uh, awkwardly similar to those more recent books, uh, Annihilation, the Southern Reach trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. Essentially, some sort of alien, uh, you know, outer space caused event has happened on Earth and has created a zone where weird stuff happens. And people called stalkers go into the zone and try to bring out the weird strange uh, artifacts that can be found there it is some of the best science fiction i've ever read because the the basic premise is that human beings are encountering something that is so far beyond our understanding that to even process what we're seeing in words is impossible and yet it's just delightfully written russian uh <laughs> russian science fiction highly recommend it check it out Trespassing Across America by Ken Ilgunas. 
This is the second Ken Ogunis book I've read. His first book, Walden on Wheels, was about him living in a van in secret on the campus of, uh, I believe it was Yale University. I totally don't remember the university. It was, it was Yale or Stanford or something. He went to a pretty prestigious school and then secretly lived in his van in the parking garages because he did not want to go into debt anymore as a student. This this is the book that sort of addresses what happens after you, you know, you write a successful book, you have this successful thing, you, your life sort of goes on, on a... Uh, you know, you sort of get a big goal in the future and you sort of work all the way toward it. And then when you get there, what do you do next? And in Ken's case, he decided to walk the entire length of the Dakota Access Pipeline and meet the people whose property it was going to pass through and whose towns it was passing through and just sort of experience it. And I got to say, I really respect that he wrote this book length narrative of his journey and he he shares what he experienced and learned, but he doesn't try to tie it all together into some grand thing. You know, he, he definitely learned things and he had experiences, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't offer a grand synthesis to a journey that clearly didn't have one. And I, I find that really compelling. I like Ken's work. I think he's very honest about his own failings and foibles in a way that a lot of travel narrative writers seem to kind of gloss over. Speaking of things that people seem to gloss over, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler. <laughs> wow! This is the most jaw-dropping book I read this year. The, the, the basic thing, um, the, the Nazis, you know, you've heard of them? They were on meth the whole time. It's kind of this historical thing that isn't really talked about or, or, or hasn't really been a major part of World War II historical narratives is how many drugs and, and how high a lot of the German high command was. The German high command. It's right there in the names. Uh yeah, the, the 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 Third Reich was basically industrially producing meth, methamphetamine, and then giving it to the generals, giving it to the soldiers. You know, you hear about Blitzkrieg where like the soldiers stayed awake for 40 hours to like push deep into France or whatever. And you read a lot of the history about it and they're like the, the German will was so strong. It's like, no, they were high as balls. They were so high. You know, uh, uh, there's the famous incident where a, a bomb was put in a briefcase underneath a table where Hitler was standing in an attempt to kill him, and he didn't die. And not only that, but he he went and met with Benito Mussolini like an hour later and just acted like everything was normal. He was on meth. He was so freaking high. Uh, yeah, if, if you want to read a book just about like, what the hell? This is definitely a great book for that. Uh, Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich. Oh, wow. Speaking of books that made me go, oh, wow. Uh, Skin Game, Peace Talks, and Battleground by Jim Butcher. These are the three most recent Dresden Files books. Uh, why do I why do I keep reading the Dresden Files books? I mean, they're fun. They're definitely fun. And Jim Butcher is writing for them to be fun. I uh, I mean, part of it is that we culturally have moved very far from where we were in, you know, 
2004 or whenever when these books started being written and and, and Jim Butcher has grown and changed in some of his uh, writing as well but I think the reason I've stuck with the Dresden Files is that the audiobooks are read by James Marsters who is known for playing Spike on Buffy uh, I, I think that's I think that's part of it is is just the delight that I get from the audiobooks by him and you know there there there's a lot to love in the Dresden Files. It's big, it's bombastic, it's absolutely like does not care about any kind of real world logic or anything like that. You have the mafia fighting ancient groups of demons while a literal crusader knight with the, the Excalibur is is facing them and you know dragons who who run banks, you know, it's just bananas. Uh but yeah, I <laughs> I can't quite say they're good, but they're fun. They're dumb, but they're fun. Pretty much what I'm saying is if you read the first Dresden Files book and you're like, this is fun. I had a good time. Then read them all. That They're all that. If you read the first Dresden Files book and you're like, I don't know about this. Don't read anymore. They're all that. <laughs> Oh, moving on. Factfulness by Hans Rosling. This is a book about sort of addressing people's general ideas about the world. You know, we have certain ideas about how the world around us is, what it means for people to live in poverty, what it means that the world is more or less dangerous than it was 50 years ago, things like that. And a lot of the times we're wrong. A lot of the times we're working from outdated information or we're falling prey to the very human tendency to not be able to understand statistics on a gut level. Hans Rosling uh, passed away just before this book was completed, but it kind of brings together all of his big ideas. I believe he did a very uh, well-regarded TED Talk as well. Uh, if you feel like the world is super dark and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, check this book out. I found a lot of hope here. I found a lot of explanations of phenomena and uh, movements that I didn't really understand explained very succinctly and clearly. This was co-written with his son and daughter-in-law as well. And it's just, it's an excellent book. There's a lot of uh, positivity and hope here. Speaking of positivity, I read Wanderlust by Elizabeth Eaves. This was like a travel narrative about like, I'm a pretty girl and I travel the world. Like, again, this doesn't have the self-reflectiveness that I thought Ken Ilgunis was able to muster. Uh, she does have some, but this is definitely a book about a young person traveling around and having sort of the, the backpacker bum adventures, but I just never really feel like she ever brought anything to the situation she went to. I tend to be really biased against this kind of narrative, which is funny because a lot of people recommend books like this to me. Um, this was recommended by a friend who, you know, was like, oh, you travel a lot. You should. And I think what it comes down to for me is that I really try to bring something to the places I travel to. You know, I'm, a, I'm an artist and a performer and I, I, I try to bring some music. I try to share magic tricks. I try to enrich the places I visit by sharing. 
so that it's not just this extractive thing. I, I feel like so often when people travel to other places, you know, on vacation, or even people who consider themselves capital T travelers, it's so extractive. You know, people go to Machu Picchu and they want they want to have some sort of experience. They want to, to take. It's 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 such a taking mentality, and I, I'm not saying I'm not guilty of that from time to time. But I I really hope that the people who have encountered me when I visited their homes or their countries or their cities are felt like I gave something back, and I just didn't get that vibe from uh, from Elizabeth. Uh, I'm sure she's a very nice person, but it, it didn't quite come across in her narrative. Uh, speaking of extractive travel, uh, I read two books of sort of advice for people who want to travel more. Uh, it's something that I try to do from time to time is if there's something that I feel like I'm pretty good at it and I kind of know what I'm doing, I like to spend time reading and engaging with other people's writing about it and other people's advice about it. Uh, I read a very good book about this and I read a very bad book about this. The bad book was called How to Quit Your Job and Travel the World by Kate Jordan. Uh, she is so, so annoying and, you know, she's just, she, she's writing this book of advice on how to quit your job and travel the world and she's been doing it for, blush, 18 months. Yep. Ooh, she really knows what she's doing. Uh, she's worked as an au pair. She's worked as like a a bartender. I, it's just like she's this like peppy young British gal and she and her boyfriend decided to go travel and do all this stuff. Uh, and this is very much baby's first I want to be a traveler book. Uh, and it's really, really aimed at people who kind of want to party when they travel. You know, young people on a gap year kind of kind of mentality i i found it insufferable and excruciating but it's short uh for more concrete useful advice that i think is a lot more clear-eyed jeff bloomfeld's you want to go where is a book specifically aimed at people who want to go on sort of more uh kind of uh uh rugged adventures you know people who want to climb everest or visit the arctic or things like that uh, and it sort of talks about ways that you can get funding or ways to connect with organizations like National Geographic or the National Science Foundation and things like that. And and it, I feel like it does a much better job of challenging the reader to actually think about why they're doing something, who it will serve, and how it will affect the people that are already there, how it will affect the people in your life. I, I, I don't know. I it's, you know, there's definitely a kind of uh, why because it's there mentality that human beings have about travel and adventure. And I, I think there's some, there's some good in that. But I think at the same time, very rarely is there any pushback. And I was really pleased that there was some from Jeff Blumfeld. It's a, a very useful book, especially if you're someone who dreams of, you know, climbing Mount McKinley or, or, or sorry, Denali, Mount Denali. I think that's right. If you dream of climbing like one of the highest peaks in the world or whatever, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, did you know there is also a club called the Low Pointers Club? So there's 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 the High Pointers and the Low Pointers, and there's also a High Low Club. Uh, high Pointers are people who visit the highest elevation in all 50 of the United States. Obviously, it's 
pretty easy somewhere like Florida. It's, it's, uh, that's like the parking lot of a Costco or something like that. But then obviously all the way up to very difficult to climb Denali, uh, mountain up in Alaska. Uh, and I learned about it in this, this book. So, uh, but then there's also people who visit the lowest elevation in all of these places. Uh, you know, which is, you know, it's a little difficult in like Colorado. I think it's like 5,000 feet, but you can drive there. The lowest elevation ones, you can drive to all of them. So, you know, if you're looking for kind of a cool, funky reason to travel and do something like that, like you could, you could be a low pointer, uh, from low points to the highest points. Uh, I read a book called becoming a mountain by Stephen Alter. Alter wrote this book after him and his wife experienced a home invasion where some men tried to rob them, broke into their house, beat them up, and uh, kept asking, where's your money? And they were like, we don't have any, it's in a bank. Uh, this happened in the the sort of the, the slopes of the Himalayan mountains in northern India. Uh, Stephen Alter has lived there his whole life. He grew up there, uh, his grandparents were missionaries and then his parents just lived there and then he also just lives there with his family now. And so he experienced this brutal home invasion and then he sort of found healing, spiritual healing by just going hiking in the Himalayan mountains. And, you know, he, he grew up there so he speaks the local dialects and he can actually communicate with people and it's a must, much less extractive sort of, um, I don't know, Western-centric narrative than I'm used to reading about places like this. Um, because in, in some senses, he is a local, but he's also an outsider because, you know, he's a, a white person. You know, his family is from Kansas originally or something like that. Uh, but a really, really different perspective on this region than I'm used to getting. He he's a mountain climber who's climbed some peaks and and things like that. But uh, he also just talks about sort of the history of mountain climbing in the area. And he's friends with a bunch of the the Indian guides um, who run India's mountain climbing uh, agency. And yeah, really fascinating uh, look at that area. Uh, speaking of uh, the Himalaya and also, uh, uh, Alter spends a bunch of his time on the Chinese side, um, of the Himalaya, uh, hiking around certain, uh, pilgrimage routes, uh, which is a perfect transition into the next book, American Shaolin by Matthew Pauly. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I've always had kind of that secret fantasy of, oh, maybe if I climbed up some mountain in China, there'd be like, a dojo there full of Shaolin monks and I could train with them and then come back as like a badass ninja like like Batman or Iron Fist or whatever you know it's just like a very kind of classic uh uh narrative you know um and Matthew Poli actually got to live it he 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 learned how to speak Chinese in college and he just decided to basically become a poor Shaolin apprentice, Shaolin monk <laughs> in Shaolin China and learn Shaolin Kung Fu. And obviously none of that goes how you would think. Uh, you know, the whole thing is a, is a giant uh, sort of tourist trap and they have to do these exhibitions and, and it's all controlled by the Communist Party, obviously, and it's all kind of like Chinese PR. But he actually does it. You know, the, the crazy boy actually does it. He goes to China 
and learns how to how to kung he 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 does he he kung fu's uh, in like that absolutely uh like, like uh, the 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 way that a movie narrative would happen uh and he meets iron crotch the the you know you're familiar with the the iron school of kung fu where it's like you could just hit your hand against uh, a rock over and over again and then eventually your hand becomes so hard that it can't be broken or whatever so there's a guy in china who uh does these exhibitions where he lets people kick him in the balls as hard as they can and he feels no pain from it it's it's insane uh but yeah this book is hilarious and very clear-eyed as to uh matthew Polly's actual state in the world a delightful read and it's an it's it's definitely an anecdote to uh that sort of i uh idea that many young people have that they could go train at some magical academy and become a badass uh he definitely hangs out with and among and at times uh is sort of badass himself but it definitely dispels the myth uh just delightful check it out the opposite of delightful was a book i read called the song of the dodo by david Quammen. i think this may be the saddest book i read all year this is a book about island biogeography biogeography bioecology uh sort of a biogeography it's about how islands have very small uh sort of contained very different ecosystems you know places where uh the grazing niche is filled by large birds like emus and things like that or the giant tortoises of the galapagos um talking about island uh giantism you know the 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 and island pygmyism the tiny elephants of the mediterranean things like that and how most of these island ecosystems have been affected by human colonization and the biodiversity is just being wiped out in places like the Galapagos or Madagascar and how it's kind of a microcosm of what is happening globally with climate change and also human expansion. And yet David Quammen also manages to find a lot of kind of aching beauty in his visits to these places and the ways in which he writes about them. And, and, you know, there's obviously, as with any of these books, there's a, there's a glimmer of hope in sort of places where strides are being made in a positive direction, but definitely the most sobering book I read this year. Um, Oh, there's, there's no good transition to the next one. Soulful Simplicity by Courtney Carver. Uh, I am definitely someone who likes to have less, likes to make do with less, you know, ultralight backpacking tips, a favorite book of mine, uh, learning to focus and have less clutter and distraction in my life is great. This is not the book to help you do that. Soulful Simplicity is... It's Budget Marie Kondo by a white lady. I I don't want to talk about it anymore. Don't bother. Uh, She has some great and interesting tips, but you can get them elsewhere. Moving on. The Final Frontiersman by James Campbell. This book is great. It's about the last subsistence fur trapper in Alaska and how he lived and, and his life. And it's written by his cousin, 
so there's sort of a familial connection and and the the level of access is obviously very high from a family member writing about a family member uh but campbell does a great job of just writing about his cousin Hymo, Hymo korth uh who lives as a subsistence fur trapper 400 miles from the nearest other people in the middle of alaska it's a fascinating portrait of a person you know uh Hymo is a complex man who's very intelligent but also mostly self-taught and just a very strange life tale that goes in directions you wouldn't expect the book is infinitely readable and at times hilarious so uh i really enjoy it especially if you like narratives of the outdoors uh especially if you enjoyed into the wild but you wished that uh, it didn't end with a vibrant young person on the cusp of having some personal revelation dying. Uh, this is a this is a sort of a more happier ending version of that tale. Monstress, Volume One: Awakening by Liu Takeda et al. This is a gorgeous comic. Uh, super weird. Uh, basically, there's like giant ghosts of dead gods wandering around the land. There are anthropomorphic animal people. There's witches. There's demons. There's ugh, it's it's just nuts and huge. And the art is gorgeous. If you like uh, Neil Gaiman's comics, if you like uh, Lord of the Rings, if you like female centric stories with uh, women authors, all of that and more. Uh, and there's so many cute kitties. It's it's so good. It's so good. Mm. It's so good. Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. This is a book about fungi, and it obviously kind of skews a little bit more philosophical uh, because fungi are one of the things that challenge our conceptions of what it means to be alive, of what consciousness is, of what even what the heck is going on in the world at large. Uh, this is a delightful book. Merlin Sheldrake's prose is poetic and beautiful. This is this is that sweet spot of someone who is a scientist who is writing a scientifically minded book who can also write really well. Delightful book. If I Live to Be 100 by Nina Ellis. Another favorite book I read this year this is all interviews with centarians. So Nina Ellis writing about her time spent getting to know people over the age of 100, sort of how they live and what they do day to day. And, you know, it's common to want to ask someone who makes it to 100, what did you do? What did you eat? You know, how do you, how do you live? And there's some of that in here. But what's really beautiful about this book is it's about Nina Ellis realizing that those are not the questions that we should be asking people who live to be 100. It's about getting the sort of life wisdom that they have. And life wisdom isn't what's the diet that lets you live to be at 100. It's how do you live that long and still enjoy it? And this book is really about answering that question. And it is delightful. Uh, one of my favorite uh, centarians who appears in it is a woman who came out as gay in her 80s and is finally living as herself. And it is so, she's such a firecracker. It's delightful. Definitely recommend it. Uh, this was written about 20 years ago. So the 
the hundred plus year old people being written about are ones who remember the late 1890s and the early 1900s. So it's just fantastic. Like there's sort of a, a if if you're sort of interested in the early 20th century, there's some incredible stories about that. I highly, highly recommend this book. Uh, if you want something full of very practical, very well laid out advice, 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now by Jaron Lanier. This is a sobering look at what social media does to your brain, what it does to your social life, and how it affects you emotionally, and why you should get rid of it. I obviously am someone who already doesn't engage with much social media other than the occasional uh, Instagram post, and even that I'm seriously considering discontinuing because I just don't think any of it is good for my brain or my soul. Uh, And Lernier makes a really good argument about that. Uh, Speaking of things that are good for the soul, Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Oh, this is a classic. Joshua Slocum is the first recorded person to circumnavigate the world solo, uh, sailing all by himself. He did it in the late 1800s. This book is this is such a good read. His he clear this book is a is a well regarded classic because of how good his writing is, and it's full of humor and delight and 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 even a little bit of high fantasy. He sort of shares some of the weird dreams he had uh, along the way, uh, and it's just he's delightful and he's he's very uh, kind of laconic in his descriptions of. Uh, of some of his stranger encounters. It's it's a wonderful book, and if you're thinking of going on any great big adventure, this is a very inspiring book. A theme that keeps coming up for me this year in terms of the books I read is reading books that are trying to understand the divisions between people in our culture. The, the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger is another book. Uh, about this phenomenon. Sebastian Junger, of course, is the author of The Perfect Storm, and he spent a lot of time sort of working with veterans and talking to veterans about uh, things like PTSD and the difficulty of re-entering society. But this book is also about the idea that human beings aren't really wired to interact with more than a couple hundred people in sort of a tighter bond, a, a tribe, if you will. Uh, when you get beyond that, our ability to have things like empathy, to understand other people's views and actions starts to be hampered by just being sort of overwhelmed, uh, which is kind of the thing that Junger lays out in this book. This was, again, a very compelling set of explanations for some of the problems that are happening in our wider society right now. And, and very, very to the point. It's a short book. It's something like 100 pages. And uh, just very, very much uh, making his case. Uh, if you're sort of interested in modern devi- divisions, uh, this is a good, good read. The longest book I read this year, and possibly the longest book I have ever read, was Jerusalem by Alan Moore. I don't even know where to start explaining this book, but it's a giant giant fantasy novel that covers millions of years of history and has dream sequences and an afterlife and a whole cosmology and there are angels and demons and 
devils and gods and heroes and and villains and it's it has everything and it it feels huge and yet the humanity of it is actually very complete once the whole thing once Moore brings the whole thing in for a landing and and like ties it all up with a bow it really lands it it really landed for me it's it's something like over a thousand pages it's like over a million words it's longer than the bible uh and yet there's a there's a depth of humanity to it it also has some long sections of more indulging in sort of his various kinds of uh pastiche so he writes a children's adventure story similar to kind of a boxcar children kind of thing um uh there's a there's a whole uh uh uh, James Joyce, Joycean sort of uh, odyssey through the city, that that kind of stuff. It's it's a delight. I I enjoyed reading this. It, it Alan Moore's prose is definitely an acquired taste, but if you are looking for something large and spacious and full of wild wild imagination, this book is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Moore does beautiful things with language. He's a crazy person, but he's definitely a good writer. <laughs> Speaking of good writers, Atlas Atlas of a Lost World by Craig Childs. Craig Childs is an incredible travel writer, sort of adventure writer. He just likes to go places and look at things. So he'll go and, and help out on an archaeological dig, or he'll go spend a night in an undiscovered pueblo somewhere in the southwest, that kind of thing. This book traces human migration into North America based on the most up-to-date science while also engaging with the creation myths of uh, indigenous peoples and seeks to paint a picture of what the Americas were like thousands of years ago. So not just pre-Columbian contact, but even pre uh you know, back when there were mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and things like that, and just sort of paint a picture of Ice Age North America, and it, in a way that I think is a lot more complete than many other accounts I've read of it. Uh, again, his prose is excellent. It's delightful, delightful uh, book. Ascender Volume 3, The Digital Mage, and Ascender Volume 4, Starseed, by Jeff Lemire, Nguyen et al., I love Jeff Lemire. He has a very Midwestern sensibility. A lot of his writing is very bleak. This is no exception. Uh, Ascender Volume 4 brings to a conclusion the the sweeping tale that he began with Descender, continued in Ascender. Uh, something like 60 issues of comic books, 50 or 60 issues, telling this one big arcing tale. It started out as sci-fi space opera and slowly turned into magic and uh like high fantasy it's hard to explain but the the overall picture of it is just awesome really really fascinating uh tale i i thought it was really delightful uh not lemire's best work that will still uh that for me is still essex county but uh really really great comic books uh these are available in trades check them out king lear by Shakespeare, the Oxford's classics edition. I, I've i seen, you know, umpteen sort of 
adaptations of King Lear and cinema and things like that, but I've never just sat down and read the actual play. And this is, it's amazing. You know, obviously Shakespeare gets a lot of, you know, play or whatever, but, uh, Whenever I actually sit down and read a Shakespeare play, I am always struck by the fact that it is very good. Like the influence on Western uh, written culture is unparalleled. And uh, with good reason, I think, the sort of psychological explorations that happen in King Lear about things like guilt and and human passion and and revenge, it's, it's, it's incredible. I... I have nothing new to add to the conversation other than the fact that it inspired me to finally pick up a copy of Christopher Moore's Lamb. So uh, we'll see how that goes. A good friend of mine got me interested in the history of rum this year. So I read two books, The History of Rum by John Donahue and a book called And a Bottle of Rum by Wayne Curtis. Uh I definitely recommend Curtis's book over Donahue's. Donahue's is much more oriented at an academic uh, sort of uh, uh, audience, and Donahue is definitely very, very interested in talking about rum only in the context of how it related to the slave trade. Well, well, I think that is interesting and valuable uh, contribution to the conversation. I think. Uh, Curtis does a much better job of placing rum in a broader historical context without focusing merely on one issue. So if you're looking for sort of the overarching book, uh, Curtis's is the way to go. Uh, I've now tasted some very, very good rums. I've, I've been rum educated uh, by my friend and also by what I've read about in these books. And uh, I learned about what is, I think, maybe my favorite cocktail now. This is an early colonial American cocktail that was one of the more popular things to drink in pre-revolutionary America was called Flip, F-L-I-P, Flip. You would take, uh, you would mull uh, half a pint of, uh, of stout with some spices. You'd put, you know, some, some cinnamon in there. Uh, and then you'd add two shots of rum to it and uh, you could also add some cream or an egg or whatever. And then uh, you would plunge a red hot poker into it and it would just make this cozy, warming, filling beverage. Uh, great for a cold, frosty night. Uh, yeah, look up Flip. I, I love it. I've made it a couple times now. It's delicious. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've, I'm a convert to demon rum, <laughs> as, they, as they say. Uh, <clears throat> Dead Souls by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol. This is Nikolai Gogol's uh, comic novel that was left incomplete at his death. It is about a con man, uh, Kanachikov, traveling uh, around uh, the eight, uh, Russia in the early 1800s and trying to pursue this scheme where he buys the indentured uh he buys the contracts of dead indentured serfs and uses them as collateral to get a large loan uh things go awry there are amazing comedic descriptions of people and places uh he's a he's a he's a delightful anti-hero and gogol is a wonderful writer i i was laughing out loud at many many parts of this book
The Way Home by Mark Boyce. Mark Boyce is an Irish author who is famous for spending a couple years of his life without money. He he wouldn't buy or sell anything, so he was dumpstering and you know sort of kind of stunty things, but but in a way that that are done on purpose to engage with modern life and to really examine if it's helping us or if it's hurting us or or if we need it. Uh, the way home is Boyce's. Account of spending a year living without modern technology. So he went and lived in a small farm in rural Ireland, didn't have electricity, didn't use chainsaws or internal combustion. Him and his girlfriend would walk everywhere, uh, you know, and, and, and grew their own food and sort of got to know their neighbors and, and wouldn't listen to, to recorded music. If he wanted to hear music, he would have to go hear it live at, at the pub during a session. It's, it's a lovely meditation on what we actually need. And we actually need so much less than we think that we do. He gets a little preachy and, you know, clearly he's a little stunty about it, but I still, I still think he, uh, he has a lot of interesting things to add to the conversation. And, uh, it's definitely worth reading. There's some, there's some very, very beautiful thoughts in this book. Neuromancer by William Gibson. I'm amazed that it's taken me until my 34th year of life to read Neuromancer. This is, uh, of course, one of the books that uh, inspired Johnny Mnemonic. Uh, sort of, and 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 this is sort of the. I think this might be the the the, the great granddaddy of the cyberpunk movement. Is that William Gibson came up with the term cyberpunk, and it's definitely uh, this is one of the early cyberpunk books. Man, this book has everything. This is a this is not a particularly long book, but like it goes to space and orbital habitats and and human gene editing and and body modification and and crazy yakuza gun battles with laser whips and it's just it's it's bananas and yet uh really at its soul it's a it's a sort of a hard-boiled noir uh and uh it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, if you're wondering why, why dreadlocks were such a thing in 90s sci-fi, I think this may be the reason. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Double Bill, Emma Bull and Will Shetterly. This is a collection of short fiction, poetry, and uh, nonfiction prose by Emma Bull and Will Shetterly, uh, husband and wife writers who live uh, in Minneapolis. Uh just so much fun. I love Emma Bull's writing so much. She wrote one of my favorite books of all time, Bone Dance. And Will Shetterly was a fun surprise as well. Uh, they, they have cute little introductions and it, they just basically uh, wanted to do their own version of kind of a, you know, an evening, an evening with Emma Bull and Will Shetterly. And it's, it's so much fun. Uh, if you've never heard of either of these writers, this is a great introduction to their writing. Last Neil Stevenson book, The Confusion. This is the second one in Neil Stevenson's epic Baroque cycle, uh, telling the tale of uh, Jack and Eliza, or I would say are the two central human beings in it. But, you know, also Isaac Newton is a character and uh, the King of France, Louis XIV, etc. Uh, just fantastic, giant, world-buildy uh, it's basically like a a, a a baroque era techno thriller 
<laughs> if that makes sense. And 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 globe spanning and there's pirates and, and buckles are definitely swashed, but there's also court intrigue and murder most foul. And one of the things that I think the Baroque series uh, by Neil Stevenson, Baroque Cycle, excuse me, does a really good job of communicating is how cosmopolitan the world was 500 years ago or 400 years ago. You know, we think of the past as being very sectored off. And I think part of that is how history is taught, you know, that that there's the Romans here and there's the Chinese over here and they never interact when in reality, the Romans and the Chinese had huge detailed files on each other. They knew all about what was going on over there, even though there weren't specifically interactions in the way that modern nations send di- diplomats and things. There was still a lot more, tra- there was a lot more travel in the early modern and pre-modern world in ways that we just think would be impossible now. You know, people people moved around a lot and people liked to check things out. I, I obviously read a lot of Neil Stevenson this year, but I, I'm getting to the end of his catalog. I don't think next year has as much Neil Stevenson in it for me as this year did. <laughs> <sighs> Last two books, uh, Elysium Fire and Inhibitor Phase, both by Alistair Reynolds. These are the two most recent books in his Revelation Space universe. And this is the only ongoing science fiction series that I've ever read that I am happily reading each book as it comes out. Uh, You know, there's a lot of series, Game of Thrones, where the author keeps promising that more books will come and that the story will all come together and that, that, that it is building to something, but it just never, it either never delivers in the case of someone like Martin, or it just delivers very poorly. But I feel like with Alistair Reynolds, because he focuses so intensely on making each individual book stand on its own, you can read any Alistair Reynolds book by itself without having read any of his other books and you can understand who the characters are and you can understand what their life motivations are and the arc of the story always completes you know people have arcs and their journey completes even though the universe goes on and sort of there's there's an overarching universal conflict that's happening with an enemy of humanity but you you don't need to read these books in order or even read all of them to get the full story. Each individual Alistair Reynolds piece, be it a short story or a big novel, stands on its own. And I think that is, a, I think that's a mark of a very good writer. That I keep wanting to go back to this world, but I don't want to feel like I have, like I have to if that makes sense. There's no obligation to go back in order to get the full story because every time I'm there, I get a full story and then I can choose whether or not to return. So that does it for part two of my reading list. I can't believe it took me over two hours to tell you all the books what I read in the past year, but it's a lot of books. I very much enjoy reading books. Do I have any kind of moral or point to this whole journey? No. All I can say is that I think I'm richer for having read all of these. Not all of them were good. Not all of them taught me something new, but all of them gave me a window into something. And I'm glad I looked in all those windows. So 
I hope this finds you well. Next episode, I will talk about my New Year's resolutions for the upcoming year, or some of them anyway, uh, sort of my plans, and uh, we'll be back to a more normal format with next week's episode. I hope this finds you all well and in good spirits and somewhere of a comfortable temperature. If you have thoughts or comments about this episode or anything, uh, or you have books that you'd like me to read or whatever, you can send your thoughts, comments, concerns, questions, books you want me to read to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 11, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you next time. Cheers.